Welcome back to the Dirt Show. You're going to be surprised to hear me say, stop watching this show if you haven't yet voted. Go out and vote. It's more important than watching me. You can also watch me later on YouTube and on Rumble. So please make sure you vote. This is a critical election. And, you know, I hear friends all the time saying, well, I don't like either candidate. You got to make a choice in a democracy. It doesn't have to be for the better candidate. It has to be against the worst candidate. And we've had too many elections recently in which many people voted for the lesser of the two evils. I wrote a book about that back in 2016 called Electile Dysfunction. The thesis of the book was that in the 2016 election, more people voted against Hillary Clinton or against Donald Trump than, than voted uh, for them. I think we're seeing a lot of that today. We're seeing a lot of that in the Pennsylvania Senate race. We're seeing a lot of that in some of the other races that divide the country. So please, if you haven't voted, if you want to watch the rest of the show, okay, but go out and vote. Make sure you get there before the polls close. Well, today was a very happy day for me because after eight years of uh, fighting uh, an accusation that a woman named Virginia Gouffray uh, made uh, about me, uh, today she issued the, the following uh, statement. Um, she said in relevant part, um, yeah, I, I, I accused uh, him, uh, but I was very young at the time. It was a very stressful and, and traumatic environment. And Mr. Dershowitz, from the very beginning, consistently denied these allegations. Now, here's the key sentence. I now recognize that I may have made a mistake in identifying Mr. Dershowitz. She may have made a mistake. I have suffered for eight years from she may have made a mistake. Well, at least she acknowledges she may have made a mistake. And in my statement, I commend her for uh, finally acknowledging that she may have uh, made uh, a mistake. Um, and I hope people will, will, will now believe her when she said I may have made a mistake. People who believed her previously will now say, well, she now admits that she may have made a mistake. And you don't convict anybody, either in the court of public opinion or in the court of law, based on I may have made a mistake. So um, I'm hoping this puts this whole accusation behind me. And I want to directly talk to those of you out there. There are many of you who have written to me calling me a pedophile, who have written me calling me worse, uh, who have accused me of, of rape. Uh, who have accused me of terrible acts of misconduct solely on the basis of um, uh, an, an accusation which the accuser now says she may have made a mistake. Um, I don't expect an apology from any of you because anybody who would have made those statements um, obviously is not uh, open-minded, but I'm interested in hearing what you think. Uh, what you think now, having called me all those terrible names, that's the accuser who is the one who stimulated you to make these accusations against me has herself now said, I may have made a mistake in identifying uh, Mr. Dershowitz. That's, that's a pretty important statement. And I'm not allowed to go beyond reading the statements we agreed on, but 
it's it's a very important statement. I'll, I'll read my own statement. Um, as I have said from the beginning, I never had sex with Miss Gouffray. I'm not uncertain about that. There's no uncertainty. There's no may. I did not have sex with Miss Gouffray. I have nevertheless come to believe that at the time she accused me, she believed what she said. Ms. Gouffray is to be commended for her courage in now stating publicly that she may have been mistaken about me. She has suffered at the hands of Jeffrey Epstein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I commend her for her work in going against sex trafficking. Um, but yeah, I, I do. But we have to rethink this whole guilt by accusation. As you know, I, I wrote a book about it. And uh, the book is not only about my case, um, serious as that is and harmful as it was to me. It's about the general attitude out there uh, in which so many people now create not only a presumption of guilt, but a certainty of guilt. If you've been accused, uh, then you're guilty. What, what do we need due process for? What do we need free speech for? What do we need to give you a right to, uh, to dissent? Uh, no, uh, if you've been accused, you're, you're obviously guilty. Why would anybody accuse you if, if you weren't guilty it, it it's absolutely certain that you 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 must be guilty i hope that we now start reconsidering that notion and go back to the notion that um you have to prove guilt um, in a civil case by a preponderance of the evidence in a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt in deportation and other kinds of cases by clear and convincing evidence we have standards we have standards of proof and the standard of proof do not include an accusation. In fact, when a judge uh, charges a jury, a petty jury, a jury of folks off the street, the judge always says an indictment. And an indictment is delivered by a grand jury. It's 23 people. It's not just one person making an accusation. An indictment is not proof of anything. All it is is a charging instrument. It's like a civil complaint in a civil case. And as uh, one judge in the Second Circuit recently said, any, any lawyer can file anything in court. So uh, he warned the media against uh, taking at, at, at face value allegations that are made in court by, by lawyers. They, they haven't given any kind of judicial imprimatur. Uh, any kind of an accusation that's made in a civil case um, uh, is just that. It's just an accusation. And then the other person will often make an accusation, namely that she's lying. Each of those accusations deserves equal weight initially. And then we have to see what the evidence is, whether there is any evidence that demonstrates that the accusation is true or whether there is any evidence suggesting that the person who made the accusation is lying. I want to make it clear. I'm not talking necessarily about my own uh, a case. I'm talking about cases in general, you know, I've been a defense attorney now for uh, 60 years, 60 years. That's a long, long time. I've defended every manner of accused person um, from the most innocent to the most guilty, from the nicest to the most reprehensible. Um, I've seen it all. I don't think there's a lawyer in American history who has handled uh, as many and as much of a variety of cases as, as I have. And um, uh, I draw some lessons from my vast, vast experience in the criminal justice system. 
And that is, do not believe accusations just based on the accusation itself. You always have to look at the underlying uh, evidence. And I mean, the other thing is, verdicts aren't necessarily correct. You have verdicts. You have people found guilty and who really are innocent. And you have people who found innocent who really did it. Now, they may not be guilty. They may be mentally ill or the government may have seized evidence improperly and used it against them. There may be technical reasons or the proof may be substantial, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. So a verdict of not guilty is not necessarily a historic conclusion of innocence. And obviously, we know that Aaron Burr complained bitterly about it at his trial for treason when the jury refused to find him not guilty. They found it not proven using the Scottish version, the verdict, uh, not proven, which is interesting. I mean, I'm sure the jurors in the Aaron Burr case said, look, we're, we're not we're not certain. We're not clear. We're not we can't find proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but we're not sure he's innocent either. So we don't want to declare him not guilty or innocent. Um, we want to say what we really think happened, and that is there wasn't sufficient, compelling, credible evidence to convict him. So not proven or insufficient evidence seems to be the the right verdict. I wish we had a verdict like that in the United States. I think it would prevent some injustices. I think there are people today who are convicted. I've had one in, in my experience. Um, his name was John DuPont. He's now dead. Um, he was convicted of uh, shooting his best friend, a champion wrestler, um, because he was mentally ill, um, um, uh, DuPont. He was an heir to the DuPont fortune. And he believed that he was the Dalai Lama and he believed he was the Pope. And he also believed that his best friend was really uh, a communist agent who had taken over the body of his best friend. And so he shot and killed what he believed was a, Russian agent who was about to kill them. Um, and the jury concluded that he was probably insane. But under the law of Pennsylvania, it was a higher standard of proof than just may have been insane or probably insane. And so it was a gray area case. And um, he was convicted. I don't think he should have been convicted. I think if there had been a verdict of not proven or insufficient proof or something like that, uh, he would have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. I've had other cases like that as well. Some have gone the other way, where people have been found not guilty who I clearly thought were guilty. And uh, I represented them. And, um, you know, did I sleep well at night? No, I tossed and turned. But um, as the Bible reminded us with the story of Abraham and God right in the beginning of Genesis, Better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. How many people out there really believe that? How many people believe that it's better for 10 murderers to go free to do it again rather than having one person who is not guilty of murder, uh, convicted of murder and falsely imprisoned or executed? I don't know how many people really believe that. You know, it comes from the Torah, from the Jewish Bible. It went then through many incarnations in French law, Roman law, American law, uh, British law, and ultimately Blackstone formulated it as better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly condemned. He meant to death. But I think it applies as well to long prison terms. And that's why we have not only a presumption of innocence, but a requirement of proof beyond 
a reasonable doubt. We live in an age now where there is no such thing as reasonable doubt about anything in life. Everything is certain. Um, if you vote a Democrat, you're an idiot. If you vote Republican, you're a fascist. Um, it's very hard to have that kind of conversation. Even my email says, we like you. A lot of my email goes the same way. We like you. We think your positions are right. But the fact that you vote Democrat means that you're stupid or vicious or terrible. And that's enough for us to discount everything else you say, as if I agree with everything the Democrats say. I don't. I'm in fundamental disagreement with a great many Democrat policies, but I'm in more fundamental disagreement with Republican policies about abortion, about gay rights, about climate control, about reasonable gun control, about separation of church and state. You know the litany of issues uh, on which I vote Democrat rather than Republican. As far as the people are concerned, I don't love I don't love all, all the Democrats, um, but uh, I like their platform a little bit better than I like the Republican platform. And that generally inclines me to vote Democrat, although I sometimes also vote Republican. One of the things that worries me so much about the Democrats today, particularly those on the hard left of the Democratic Party, uh, grows out of my two recent books, uh, Guilt by Accusation, and, and the price of, of principle that I think many in the Democratic Party have become unprincipled. They just know they're right and they don't care about freedom of speech or, or due process. They're part of the Me Too at any cost movement. Um, I'd like to start a new movement. It's called Me Too. Me Too have been falsely accused. Me Too, uh, there's been a presumption of guilt uh, when I'm uh, innocent. Um, you know, me too is a powerful is a powerful uh, movement, and it's important that apply as well to wrongly accused, wrongly convicted people. Look, don't have any sympathy for me. I'm, you know, I, 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 I I'm going to live through this. I'm not going to jail. No, no prosecutor ever even implied that I was uh, guilty of anything. It's just that one person said, and now she said she's. She's not sure, and, and, and she recognizes she may have made a mistake. So, so don't have sympathy for me. Have sympathy for the person who's serving a prison term based on somebody who might not have been sure, but who expressed certainty on the witness stand and, and was believed. Um, that's the real victim of our system of injustice now, particularly when it comes to uh, women accusing men, but there are also cases of, of men accusing men. There have been a recent spate of cases, though, of course, where uh, Kevin Spacey and uh, the other actor uh, who were accused and um, uh, their cases ended up uh, uh, without a conviction. Um, and um, you know, mine was never a case of conviction or, or acquittal, but um, perhaps my case will add to the list of cases in which at least doubts have been expressed. And so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of having stood up. I'm proud of the fact that even Virginia Gouffre, in her statement, uh, said that Mr. Dershowitz has, from the beginning, consistently denied these allegations. I have consistently denied these allegations. Um, and, um, um, and I am very happy that she went the step further, the important step further, and said, I now recognize I may have made a mistake, a mistake, a mistake. 
in identifying Mr. Dershowitz. That's really important. And I hope the media will cover that mistake uh, widely. And I hope it will have implications for uh, other cases. And I hope other women will show the courage that Virginia Gouffre has shown and come forward and say, look, I too may have made a mistake. I too am not certain. Maybe the person who's in jail for five years shouldn't be there. Maybe I mistook him for somebody else. And maybe I did consent. And now I feel terrible about it. And so I'm saying I didn't consent. There are all kinds of issues. And there are there are real cases of horrible, horrible sexual predatory abuses where men deserve to be in jail for long periods of time for real rape and for a real uh, 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 attacks on, on, on women. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not in favor of those people. I may occasionally have to defend them, just like I occasionally have to defend uh, women. I've defended quite a few women in, in my career, including some who have been abused by their husbands and, and partners. Um, I don't pick my cases based on my personal uh, preferences, personal ideology. I pick my cases based on who needs uh, the lawyer most, uh, whose constitutional rights have been most violated, who is the most unpopular, who has the least likely chance of getting justice unless they have a good lawyer. And now that um, uh, my case has come to uh, an end with this uh, resolution, uh, both she and David Boys have uh, dropped all of their uh, claims against me. And of course, I've dropped my counterclaims. They were counterclaims. Uh, against them. So that part of my life is now is now completed. Now the book is closed. I'm going to go on to fight other battles. I'm, I'm suing uh, CNN. Um, let's see if they come forward and admit that they were mistaken and uh, they were wrong in saying what the tape shows. I didn't say. I hope they will, but uh, don't know. But I'm not going to give up. I'm going to fight to the end. I'm going to fight until I'm totally vindicated in the CNN case because, again, I did absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, what I said was the most obvious thing in the world, that if there is a quid pro quo that's legal, like the example I gave, is if the government of the United States says to the Israelis and the Palestinians, look, we'll give you money, but we're not going to give you money if you continue to build settlements on the West Bank or to the Palestinians, if you continue to pay for uh, terrorism. Uh, we won't give you the money. That's quid pro quo. And that's a perfectly lawful quid pro quo. And a president can't be impeached for that. And what I said is if a president does a lawful, lawful, legal, non-corrupt quid pro quo, and part of the reason he did it is in the national interest, but part of the reason is he wanted to be elected again the way Lincoln wanted to be elected when he sent the troops home to vote in the middle of the Civil War in Indiana. All I said was, if it's a perfectly legal quid pro quo, the mere fact that a president may be partially motivated by what all kind of, all politicians are motivated by, the desire to be elected, that can't be a possible ground for impeachment. And what they did is they had their, um, their commentators. Um, first, they edited the film. Um, they doctored the film. They, made, they left out the words on illegal, unlawful, and, and, and corrupt. And then they had their commentators say, Dershowitz says a president can do anything illegal and lawful and corrupt and not be impeached as long as he thinks it's in the public interest. Exactly the opposite of what I said. So I'm hoping they'll see the light and, and follow and at least say, we're not so certain that we were accurate 
in describing what uh, what Dershowitz said, I'd be much happier if they said we are certain and we now apologize because we know that we mischaracterized what he said. So, you know, I'm still in the fight, 84 years old. I don't give up. <clears throat> I will continue to fight um, CNN as I thought other miscarriages of justice, and I will continue to fight miscarriages of justice, mostly on a pro bono basis, um, and sometimes not on a pro bono basis, uh, mostly for people I don't agree with, uh, sometimes for people I don't like, but I like the Constitution, I like the Bill of Rights, and I like the, the right of counsel. So last time we talked about baseball, wow, that's quite a, quite a difference from what we've talked about um, uh, today. We talked about baseball and whether or not the major leagues are sufficiently diverse. Only 7% of major league players are African-American in the sense of they're Americans of African descent without a connection to Central America or South America. They're not Hispanic blacks. They're African-American blacks. And although a very substantial number of people who play in Major League Baseball are people of color, not enough of them, according to the diversifiers, um, uh, are, are true African-Americans. Well, you heard my point of view about that. And almost everybody in my mail <laughs> agreed with me, some in language that I won't repeat, others in language that I can repeat. This is a marginal one. Okay. Diversity is just another word for no white men. No, that's not the argument that was made here. The argument that was made here was that <clears throat> Major League Baseball isn't diverse enough that African-Americans are 13, 14, whatever percent of the population. And uh, there are a much higher percentage of athletically superior players in basketball and in, in football um, and, and they're great, great talents. And uh, But why are there only 7%? In baseball, the argument was that the pipeline into Major League Baseball hasn't gotten enough uh, incentive to go after young black kids. Uh, baseball diamonds are, don't exist in the middle of inner cities. Basketball courts do. There are lots of good reasons that may explain it, but the end result was a lack of diversity. So that was the claim that was made, and that's what I responded to on my show, and there are a number of responses to that. Um, one, this is the biggest bullshit question I've ever seen. Two teams put the best of their best head-to-head, -head, period. Why bring politics and skin color into it? <clears throat> I mean, there's a, there's a point there. Again, as I said yesterday, most, not all, most of the great stars of, of Houston and, and of, uh, of Philly uh, were people of, of color. You know, the winning home run was hit by a, a Cuban of color. The um, uh, starting pitcher uh, was a, a person of, of, of color. Um, the, the most valuable player uh, was a uh, Latino person of color. Yeah, sure. There was Verlander and, and Bregman as well. Bregman? does lend a little bit of diversity. He's Jewish. Um, Verlander, um, not so much. But um, those were the great players, among others. Uh, Houston had a phenomenal team. I mean, their record this year uh, in the ordinary season was so great. And then they just just ran through the postseason. Um, you know, they beat the Yankees in four straight. I was at the last game. 
Um, they beat the first team they played um, in, in two straight. I think it was, I don't remember, three straight. I can't remember. And then, um, you know, they won the World Series uh, uh, four games to two. They had a remarkable season. And uh, contributors to that remarkable season included many people of color, thus creating real diversity, more diversity than exists in many other areas of life. But for those who are not satisfied, because not enough of them were people of color who could be called African-Americans as distinguished from Latino uh, Americans, that became a gripe. We talked about it. and There are two sides to every issue. Uh, Let's see. So one more on that one. I never, ever in my life watched a baseball team and thought about diversity. My only thought is, can these guys win or not? Same for football, basketball, etc. I have looked at my garden as though I was leaving out some vegetables, more diversity, instead of growing too much of one. So the world itself has been distorted and fairly recently, probably in search of a political end. I am shocked today by the view of young adults who hate America and want to cancel speech or opposing points of view, not the America I grew up with, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look, we all, we all have some nostalgia for the good old days. And in my case, the good old days weren't so good. You know, the good old days when I was in my law school class, I was first in my class. I just recently married two wonderful little children. Uh, I was turned down by every single Wall Street firm because I was Jewish. Oh, that was the good old days. Um, for some, those were the good old days because the jobs all went to white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestants. So we've changed. Do we have too much emphasis today on, on racial diversity? Reasonable people could argue that. Did we have too little back then? We sure did have too little back then. Uh, diversity in a Wall Street firm meant a German Jew uh, among 150 white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or maybe one Italian Catholic, although some firms like Ravaswain and more, when I sued them, didn't have a single ethnic Catholic in the entire firm. By ethnic Catholic, I mean Irish Catholic or Italian Catholic. They could have had maybe an English Catholic, um, but, uh, but not somebody who uh, identifies ethnically with Irish or Italian. So we, we didn't have diversity, but on the other hand, we also had overt discrimination. That's the Jackie Robinson story. Jackie Robinson is not the poster person for diversity. He's the poster person for ending discrimination. And once discrimination against African-Americans and people of color uh, ended, we saw Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and, um, you know, you name it, the greatest players in the history of baseball. Now, of course, Aaron Judge, who is as good as any of them. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was one of the owners of one of the teams, and I commented that uh, if Aaron Judge's contract uh, comes through as, as suggested, he will make more each game than Sandy Koufax made for an entire season. More in one game than perhaps the greatest pitcher of modern times made for a, a whole season. Some of you remember when Koufax and Drysdale, the two great pitchers for the unfortunately Los Angeles Dodgers, they both started with the Brooklyn Dodgers, but they ended up in Los Angeles when they went on strike because they wanted to achieve the magic number of $100,000 each. Finally, they got their $100,000 each. Today, we talk about contracts in the, in the tens, and now we're beginning to talk about contracts in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So let's see, one more question. This is a good one. 
How far does your belief in free speech extend? You mentioned Irving, obviously the player for the Nets, um, and that you agree with the punishment he was given for sharing black Hebrew Israelite videos. Is being wrong something to be punished for? I'd prefer bigots talk and get socially shunned and rebutted, but going after people's income over their horrible opinions seems too far to me. It seems like a contradiction to your belief, uh, the case against the new censorship. It's a good point. Um, the NBA is private, and that's our private team. Um, a private team is not governed by the First Amendment, and um, its fan base would have suffered greatly had they not done something about Irving, and a lot of the fan base in Brooklyn um, are, are, are Jewish, Italian, Irish people, uh, uh, and African-American, obviously, and many of them just couldn't stand the idea of watching a player who had made those kinds of statements. But I'm, I'm sympathetic with you. I'm, I generally don't favor punishing people for making bigoted statements. My preference is for the team to get together and say we disassociate ourselves from these statements. There is no basis, in fact, uh, for them um, uh, and maybe a little bit of, uh, of internal team uh, punishment. I don't know how you do that because in the end, a player like Irving <coughs> is going to be judged by, you know, how many baskets he scores, how many assists he makes and how many defensive stops he's, he's going to make. And um, I, I think there's an argument that can be made that says basketball players should be judged by the quality of their Basketball playing and opera singers should be judged by the quality of their opera singing, not whether they were born in Russia or not. So I think there's a strong case. And here's an, here's an instance where I think one of my letter writers has probably convinced me to change my mind. So um, I'm rethinking and probably I'm coming down on your side. Uh, let the marketplace of ideas respond to Irving rather than the ownership of the team with with financial penalties. Interested in what you have to say uh, about that. So I'm going to head off now to Columbia Law School where I'm debating uh, Roe versus Wade and its overruling and whether the overruling of Roe versus Wade was in fact judicial activism. Uh, I'm taking the position that it was judicial activism uh, and my distinguished opponent is taking the position that it was not. So I don't get to rest after this podcast. I get to debate and uh, Maybe tomorrow I'll start by telling you a little bit about how that debate went. Uh, see you tomorrow.